Yo, 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 what is good, people all over the globe? I am so glad that y'all joined me for this episode. This one might be a little bit shorter than usual. You, you, you might be listening and all of a sudden just cuts off and you're going, what on earth? But Romans 8 is a long chapter. I don't know what Paul was doing. He, he might have got a revelation or something because this dude just started writing for some reason in chapter 8. And so it's probably, honestly, honestly, I might have to break this into three different episodes for Romans 8 because there's just so much stuff in the first 11 verses that I wanted to cover today that I am so excited to share it with y'all. But before we hop into it, um, some of y'all might not know, we have a, an Instagram and a Facebook page for the podcast. If y'all wanted to like get connected and just see my family, my everyday life, there's a link in the show notes. If you just click on that thing, it'll give you all the links to to the Facebook, the YouTube, the Instagram, if y'all wanted to get involved a little bit more. But we're going to hop into this Romans 8 verses 1 through 11. And I think I'm going to start reading through the whole passage before we start breaking it down. Let let me know if y'all like that or not. I just think it'll help us get a general idea of what Paul's saying, and then we can start breaking it down verse by verse. So we're going to read through Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let's get it. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, Paul gave us some some good stuff. He he gave us some nuggets, some some knowledge nuggets is what I'm gonna call them. So we're gonna hop into this. Let's start breaking this down like we normally do. Verse one. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. So the word that gets translated to condemnation comes from the Greek word katakrima, which basically is defined as penalty. There is therefore now no penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, what does this mean? This means that there is no penalty resulting in judgment, in in eternal judgment or condemnation. Now, obviously, from reading this verse, we realize this is good news. (laughs) Like, Like for the believer, this is great because before Christ, we were bound to condemnation for our sins. There was no way we were working ourselves out of the pit that we dug. That was before Christ. But what Paul has done in the last three chapters is he has spent that time explaining to the Roman believers why they are free from sin. 
why they are free from the law, more importantly. So for a second, put yourself in the shoes of the Roman believers that Paul is writing to, right? Because obviously this is good news for the Gentiles. You know, they, they never had any experience of, of Yahweh or any of these prophecies that talked about a coming Messiah. They had no experience with the law. Before Jesus, before the gospel was preached, they were living their good old Gentile life, doing their thing. So this is obviously good news for them, right? Because they now know that they are saved from their sins through Christ Jesus. But for the Jews in Rome, the Jewish believers, this is monumental. This is groundbreaking. It may even be confusing. See, one of the things I've run into when reading Romans is it, it seems like Paul is repeating himself in just different words. It seems like he's kind of repeating the same type of things, saying that, you know, they're, the law is no longer applied to them. They're no longer under the condemnation of sin. They have new life. It seems like he just continues to hammer these points. And, you know, for a reader like me, who's not Jewish, who didn't grow up with the law, I'm like, okay, Paul, I get it. But you have to understand, for the Jewish believers, th this is a paradigm shift. This goes... This, it seems to go against everything they grew up knowing about the law. It seems to go against it. And so for the Jewish people, they come from having the law that condemned them for their sins. It condemned them. They had to go make sacrifices when they sinned. They couldn't enter into God's presence with sin. Their, their actions led to God having to judge them because of their sins. That was the law that they lived under. It shows them that they are unrighteous before God. And they take that seriously. And we can tell by if we jump a little bit forward in the book of Romans or the letter to the Roman uh, church to Romans chapter 14, we, we see that the Jewish believers and the Gentiles are arguing about what food is good to eat, what food is clean or unclean, pure or unpure, what day should be observed like the Sabbath and, and these other Jewish holidays. And in other parts of the letter to Rome, we learn that the Jewish believers are trying to tell the Gentile believers that they got to be circumcised and they got to observe the Sabbath and they have to do all these things that the law ordered. And this is tough. It's one thing to try and apply the disagreements that we have in our modern world with the disagreements that were going on in the early Roman church. Because Romans chapter 14 is one of those chapters that people will normally bring up when there's disagreements in the body of Christ. They'll do this all the time. I've done it in past episodes. It's a good chapter to do that. But what people will do is they'll say, hey, look, Paul tells the believers that if you have disagreements on food or disagreements on, you know, what days are holy and what days should be observed to, uh, to not worry about it, you know, don't do things that'll make other believers stumble. Don't require, you know, these type of third rate issues to each other. Just as long as Jesus is the center, that's all that matters. And, and that's what Romans 14 gets used as. It is a tool to just say, hey, let's not disagree. Now, although I agree with the use of that, when we read through the letter of Romans, we have to understand the context of what was really going on between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. It wasn't just as simple as saying, oh, these guys like eating steak and I prefer salmon and so we're going to argue. That's not what it was. 
You have to understand, the Jewish believers returned back to Rome after being exiled. They returned back. And all of a sudden, the church is switched. It's no longer observant of the law because it's ran by Gentiles who know nothing about the law. And then here you have Paul rolling up and saying, hey, guys, um, <laughs> hey, it's your boy, Paul. Uh, I know that as Jewish people, we followed the law of Moses. I, I know that was our thing. Um, and, and I know that we followed it religiously, you know, the very best that we could because we understood that this was God's law. But it doesn't apply anymore. C could you imagine how that would have had these Jewish believers in the church of Rome feeling? The thing that, that literally set them apart in a, in a metaphysical sense from the other nations around them was that they had the covenant. They had the law. They set themselves apart by what they wore, by what they ate, by how they worshipped, by who they worshipped. They set themselves apart as a people group, as Yahweh's people. And the law was one of the main ways of doing that. And now you have Paul saying, yeah, the, the guy that you're worshipping, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, the law that you once followed that set you apart no longer applies. And no longer do I want you to be solely focused on being set apart, but to be inclusive to all believers around you. This was a paradigm shift. The best example I can think of off the top of my head would be imagine in America, right? We have the Declaration of Independence. We have the Bill of Rights. We have the Constitution. These are fundamental to being an American, right? In this country, it's fundamental to how we operate, to how people move, how the government works in our country. We have rights that are instilled that people live and die for to keep these freedoms. Now imagine one day a president comes through and says, hey, um, because I'm president, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, although it was great and it helped us in the past, we're, we're no longer doing that. We're going to be inclusive to everybody. And as long as everybody follows me, we'll be good. Now, I know that parallel isn't perfect. I, I get that. But I'm trying to get us in the mindset. Imagine if you're an American and you hear that from your president, you would be losing your mind. You would be truly struggling to just let go of what made you an American in your country to then just be inclusive of everybody. And this is very synonymous to how the Jewish believers would have been feeling. That's why Paul, time and time again, continues to tell the Jewish believers that they are no longer under the law and that the most important thing is that they are living in conformity to Christ and not the law. So we get all of that from Romans 14. And I know we're in Romans 8, but Romans is one of those letters that honestly should be read backwards. There, there's a book by uh, Scott McKnight called Reading Romans Backwards, and it actually really helped me in understanding this letter because you learn so much about the actual situation in the Roman church from chapters like 12 to 16. You learn about the inner conflicts that are going on. And knowing that, it enlightens your entire reading of the chapters beforehand. It's so great. We really need to do that. But back to my point, I say all of that to say that the Jewish believers at this time, 
still felt on some level that the law still had to be observed in order to stay right with God. That's why they continue to try and pressure the other believers in Rome to follow the Sabbath, to be circumcised, to eat the um, kosher foods. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. There's no condemnation. If you don't follow the eating laws in the covenant, if you don't observe the, the Sabbath and the Jewish holidays, if you don't get circumcised, Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus supersedes the law. And, and he continues on the same thought process going on into verse 2 through verse 4. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so before we break this little section down any further, we need to do another breakdown of what the word law means. So if you listen to last episode, the end of Romans chapter 7, there is a few verses where Paul uses the word law, and they mean completely different things in the very same passage. And so we broke it down. I want to do the same thing here. So I'll give you a refresher. So in the letter to the Roman people, the word law can be used to refer to the Sinai covenant, so the law of Moses, or the Torah as a whole, all five books. It could be used to talk about God's moral law. It could also be used to mean an expected occurrence, like a law of nature or a set of rules or a power. So we're going to read through this again with that in mind, and I'm going to say the word law and then explain what it means in this context. We can understand this passage a little bit better. Okay, so once again, verse 2. For the law, or the power, of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law, or power, of sin and death. For God has done what the law, the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the law of Moses, might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay. Now that we understand how law is used in each instance, we'll start our breakdown. So verse 2, we have one law which is greater than the other. We have the, the law of the Spirit, which is greater than the law of sin and death, because Jesus defeated sin and death. And then we have one law which fulfills the law of Moses. So we are not bound to the law of sin and death. So I'm going to say it again. So verse 2. The law of the Spirit, which we get through Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law of Moses so that we are no longer bound to the law of sin and death. This is what Paul's trying to get them to see. And we have to ask ourselves this, because Paul says that, that God did what the law could not do because it was weakened by flesh. So what was the law of Moses unable to do? It was unable to make us righteous. And it's not because the law itself was bad or because it failed, but because humans in our sinful nature failed to live up to the standards of the law. And what Paul is doing is he's contrasting 
in this passage something like what we find in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Because in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So because of this, because our sinful passions were aroused by the law, what the law could not do was make us righteous. And he's contrasting this with what Jesus was able to do. Because with Jesus's ability to do the complete opposite of what Paul says our sinful nature does, Jesus was able to deny the flesh and not be aroused to sin by the law. That's why Jesus was able to do what the law could not do. And reading reading chapter 8 really puts things like Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19 in perspective. So let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so as one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, so keeping this in mind, thinking back to the Jewish believers in the Roman church, if they are tracking with what Paul is saying, they will see that the law, in a sense, was necessary because of Adam's sin, because of their ancestors' sin. There's this interesting phrase that Hebrew rabbis uh, used to use, and it's this phrase, I'm not going to even try and say it in the Hebrew, but it gets translated to mean the deeds of the fathers are a sign of the sons. The deeds of the fathers are a sign of the sons. Of the sons, maybe maybe you've heard it like this: uh, like father, like son, right? It's that concept, and and this is interesting, especially in the Old Testament, because when you look at the narratives of the patriarchs, which would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they not only tell us ab- about them, they not only just give us their story, but they also use language and archetypes that foreshadow what would happen to their descendants, which would be Israel. So the deeds of the fathers are a sign. Of the son, and Seth Postel um, points out some really, really dope uh, parallels between Abraham's narrative at the beginning of Genesis in uh, chapter twelve, and um, the narrative of the Exodus with his descendants in Israel. And, and there's some seven key similarities that I want to point out, and it can really help us hone in on this phrase: "The deeds of the fathers are a sign of the sons." And the reason why I'm pointing this out. Is, is Paul is tracking on this idea, on how the descendants or the sons of Adam, the first Adam, followed in his footsteps of sin, and how when we are in Christ, we follow in the footsteps of Christ, who is the last Adam. But before I get too far ahead of myself, let's point out these similarities so you can see what I'm talking about. So the narratives of Abraham and Israel in the Exodus. The first thing is that there was a heavy famine. And we find this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, and um, in Genesis chapter 43, verse 1, when it comes to the Israelites. The second point is the descent to Egypt. Both Abraham and the Israelites go down into Egypt. The third one is a life-threatening situation to the males, but not to the females. We obviously know this famously um, when Pharaoh wanted all the Hebrew baby boys to be killed. And also we find this in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 12, when it comes to Abraham. The fourth similarity is there is a captivity in Pharaoh's service. 
for Abraham. This is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 15. And in Exodus, it's chapter 1, verse 11. We obviously know that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Number five is that there were plagues upon the Egyptians. This is a really tiny um, part of Abraham's narrative that can be missed. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 17, there was actually plagues sent to Egypt. And then obviously we know about the plagues in Exodus uh, with the Israelites. Uh, The sixth similarity is the expulsion from Egypt because of the plagues. And the seventh is the departure from Egypt with great wealth. And this is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 16, and Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and 38. Now, the phrase, the deeds of the fathers are a sign of the son. These similarities are no coincidence. These similarities are there to point out the fact that like father, like son, the deeds of the father are a sign of the sons. Another really cool, interesting similarity between the Old Testament figures and their descendants is actually between Noah and Moses. This one actually blew my mind. I'm so surprised that I've never been taught this or never heard this, but we all know the story of Noah. God sent a flood. um, God told Noah to build an ark, and he was saved from a watery death by means of an ark. In the Hebrew word for ark is teva, and we find that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, in the narrative of Noah. But this is what surprised me, that Moses was also saved from a watery death in an ark. Now, you might not have ever been taught this, and it blows my mind that I've never heard this before, but we normally hear about Moses being saved uh, from a watery death when his mom put him in a a basket, right? A reed basket and, and sent it down the water. That's how our Bibles translate it, is by a basket. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that we translate as basket when it comes to Moses is actually the Hebrew word teva, which is the same word that gets translated as ark for Noah. And I don't know why we translate this word as basket in this one scenario, because every other time that the Hebrew word teva is found in the Torah, it means ark. It means ark. Now, why do I say this? I say all of this to say that the Hebrew rabbi's phrase, the deeds of the fathers are a sign of the sons, is a real deal. And you see it in the entire narrative of the Torah. You really do. So I think it's just really cool that Noah was saved by an ark and so was Moses. Oh man, that's so cool. But okay. So like I said before, if they're tracking with Paul, they're going to see that since you followed in your father's footsteps, right? And we know that this is a common theme throughout the entire biblical narrative in the Hebrew Bible. So this wouldn't have been new to the Jewish believers that that the descendants follow their father's footsteps. So Paul is getting at that, hey, since you followed in your father's footsteps, you continue to carry condemnation by sinning against the law. But now that the last Adam, which is Jesus, broke the cycle of sin and fulfilled the requirements of the law, so that sin is now condemned and brought to justice, because of this, all those who follow the last and perfect Adam will follow in their father's footsteps and continue to carry righteousness since they have died to sin and rose with a new life. See, we could miss this. If we don't do a careful study of what Paul's trying to say, we could easily miss this. Paul is saying, look, for all of humanity, 
we have followed in our father's footsteps. And the father would be Adam. We followed in his footsteps. We continued on sinning and trespassing against God. But now, now that Jesus, which is the last Adam, has defeated sin and death, we are now called to follow in our new father's footsteps and carry on in righteousness and love. Oh my gosh, I love the Bible, dude. I love the Bible. That is why Paul says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He expects us to no longer follow the deeds of Adam, but to now follow in the footsteps and deeds of Jesus through the spirit. Oh, dude, I love the Bible. All right, I got to keep going. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the big question here is this, what does it mean to live according to the flesh and according to the spirit? Well, the the word according that gets translated, uh, it comes from the Greek word kata, which means day by day or by way of. So if we take that into consideration, it would be those who live by the way of the flesh or spirit. So it's not just a, a moment of weakness. It's not just a singular Um, action or moment in time when you decide to walk according to the spirit or walk according to the flesh. This is a lifestyle. This is your status as a believer on whether or not you are saved or unsaved. If you're walking according to the flesh, then that means you're unsaved. But if you walk according to the spirit, then that means that you're saved. And and, and we can prove this further. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 6 verse 7. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So Paul is just reminding us that, hey, uh, uh, walking according to the Spirit is not just something that you do on a, you know, a, a few moments out of the week or out of the year. No, no, no. Paul says, when you make that commitment and you die with Christ, you also live with him. This is your new life. This is how you now live is by the spirit and no longer by the flesh. So to clarify, it's those who are unsaved by Christ that live by way of the flesh and their minds are set on those things. They're they're, they're stuck in sin. They're stuck in condemnation. And if that's true, then it follows that those who live by way of the spirit who are saved Set their minds on the Spirit. And in a sense, if you are stuck in sin and condemnation because you are unsaved living by the flesh, then that means that when you're saved and you walk according to the Spirit, that you're stuck in righteousness. That should make us happy. That's good news. Verse 6 is interesting because Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. When I first read through this, I would read it as saying, for to set the mind on the flesh leads to death or brings death. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that setting the mind on the flesh is a precursor for a consequence of death. What Paul says is that 
it is death. Setting your mind on the flesh literally is death. To be focused solely on satisfying your sinful desires means you are already dead. It's not something that leads to death down the road. It, it just means you're dead in a spiritual sense. There is not life in a mind that focuses on its selfish desires. There is not life in a spirit that is solely consumed with gratifying the flesh. It's just not the case. And Paul sets this up beautifully because he just got done in the last few chapters explaining how we can be dead to sin and have new life. So this idea that Paul now posits in chapter 8 of being able to be dead already in a spiritual sense while being alive physically, this, this is not new to the Roman people now. They've already heard Paul talk about this in the last two or three chapters. And this narrative idea would have been familiar to the Jewish people. Maybe not the Gentiles, right? Maybe for the Gentiles, this would have been a new um, idea that somehow your, your spirit could be dead, but physically you can still be living. That may be new to them, but for the Jewish believers, th this wasn't anything new because they were familiar with this when it came to their ancestor, Adam. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we read that when they eat of the tree— or before they eat of the tree, and God's telling them not to. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this verse, for some reason, has sparked discussion for ages. Because people will ask the question, they'll say, Okay, what type of death was God talking about? Was he talking about spiritual death? Or was he talking about like physical death? And the answer is so obvious. It's yes. <laughs> yes, he was talking about both. Because look, Adam and Eve did not drop dead physically the second that they ate of the apple. But something internal died within them, sparking all of humanity to adopt this sinful nature, causing us to be dead spiritually. But although they didn't drop dead immediately, when they ate of that tree, we find out in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3 that God had to kick them out of the garden because he realized that if they were in the garden near the tree of knowledge or the tree of life that they would eat of it and they would be immortal so he exiled them from the presence of the tree of life which sustained their physical immortality so the answer to that question is yes <laughs> now in verse 7 paul says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot and paul represents his point from chapter 7, verse 18, when he says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. He represents this point, stating that although his sin nature can cause him to sin, he understands that his mind is set on the Spirit. So when he says in, in chapter 7, verse 16, that he agrees with the law because he acknowledges his sin as sin, what he's saying is that for those whose mind is set on the flesh, those who are unsaved, they do not acknowledge that their sin is sin because they do not submit to God's law. It's not on their conscience. And maybe you can relate because, look, I remember when I was younger, before I was truly saved, and I guess that's weird to say because I grew up in church from the longest time I can remember, 
But for the longest time, I was not really saved. And there would be things that I would do and things I would say, and I never thought they were wrong. I never did them or, or said them and thought, man, like I messed up, right? Now, now, if my parent was like, Dante, you shouldn't do that, of course I felt that. But if I was by myself and I did something or said something, I would never sit there and go, hmm, Dante, that was really messed up. You shouldn't have done that. And now looking back with a new standard of goodness revealed through Christ, I look back and I go, oh my goodness, I would never do those things again because my mind is convicted by God's moral law. It's in my heart. I no longer am living by the flesh where my mind is set on the flesh, but my mind is set on the spirit so that if I have a moment of weakness or a moment where I want to say or do something that I know is wrong, since my mind is set on the spirit, my mind can, can be like an accountability partner saying, hey, no, 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 you, you know this goes against God's moral law and you shouldn't do it. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. So in verse 9, Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul clarifies in case this question was asked, because I can just imagine someone thinking this or asking it because I thought the same thing. And the question would be, so are we a flesh then because we have physical bodies? Like, like if we have physical bodies, wouldn't that mean that, that we're of flesh and that means that we have a mind of flesh? Like, don't you see the problem here, Paul? That's the question that would pop into my mind. And, and Paul saying, no, 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 no. You are not of flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what it means to be of flesh, as we reiterated earlier, is literally that you do not have the Spirit of God. You are not saved through Jesus Christ. So Paul clarifies any type of confusion that, that one might have. And everything that Paul says here, it kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And I think Paul's tracking on this thought. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And what is entailed in that baptism? And we talked about this a few episodes ago. But what's entailed in that baptism into Christ Jesus is what we hear in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, when we hear that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. So Paul's just reiterating that, that yes, what I said to y'all a few chapters earlier about you being baptized into Christ and that baptism comes from what we know out of Luke chapter 3 that we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's how we can have the Spirit of God in us. Paul's saying, yes, I am affirming and saying again in, in different words that you have the Spirit of God in you, which means you are dead to sin and you are not of flesh but of spirit. All right, verse 10. We're almost done, y'all. We're almost done. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, this reminds me of a verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, where Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, when it comes to our devotion and focus, it's clear that following the law of the Spirit is far more important 
Because the spirit, as Paul says, is life. And although our body is dead because of sin, this doesn't mean that we're just to neglect our bodies or or hate them or be appalled by them. No, no, no. Paul, what Paul is talking about here, when it comes to our body being dead because of sins, he's talking in, in a mortality sense. He, he's talking in a metaphysical sense where our bodies are mortal. They have a clock and they will die because of our sin. But through Jesus, we gain the spirit which gives eternal life and righteousness. So with all that being said, our bodies aren't to be hated or or ridiculed or looked down upon. Our bodies should be treated as a vessel for God. And this is what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 9, or chapter 19, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'll leave you with that. Glorify God in your body. Hope you'll have a great rest of your day. Peace.